This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 299 of the program. Today is Friday, July 16th, and before we begin, I want to take some time to thank all of the people who make the show possible. All of our newest Patreon, PayPal, YouTube, and Twitch supporters who either signed up for the very first time to support us this week, submitted a one-time donation to us, or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us. And that includes the great Becca Link, Bup Dragon, Gary Johnson, Jason Kennedy, Jen M., Kevin Colwell, Navinix, Old Dragon Lady Number One, Richard H. Caraballo Vega, Shannon the Bone Bonarinsky, Texar Two, and T Squared Twenty Ninety Nine. Thank you all so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com/support, patreon.com/forward/slash/humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week we have a really jam-packed episode because I will most likely be off next week. I know that, you know, next week is kind of a big milestone or it was scheduled to be a milestone, our 300th episode. But I'm going to take a little bit of a break for my birthday. I need a ba- a break and I, I don't know that it's going to be like a full vacation, staycation rather. But, you know, I, I will be not putting out as much videos, but I will, of course, be trying to feed the algorithm because you can't not do that as a YouTuber. Uh, But on this episode, we'll talk about the importance of lifting the embargo on Cuba, the dumbest moments from CPAC 2021, not including interviews from attendees at CPAC, which we'll also talk about. And we'll also discuss the transphobic heckling of Caitlyn Jenner at CPAC. Also, Nina Turner's lead has shrunk drastically, and we will talk about the implications of this. The German chancellor faces pressure to support the trips waiver as she comes to the United States to talk to Joe Biden. Republicans push anti-discrimination laws for anti-vaxxers. An anti-vax nurse in Louisiana died due to COVID-19. A Fox guest claims slavery wasn't actually racist. Hot take. Uh, Biden has scaled back the use of drones, and we'll talk about that. And also, The Daily Wire is celebrating an anti-woke country star who might actually be more cringe than Tom McDonald, if you could believe that. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you enjoy what I have in store for you. Let's waste no time and get right to it, because we have quite a bit to talk about. So if you'll recall, back in May, we talked about an internal poll from Nina Turner's campaign, and it showed that she had a 35-point lead over her closest opponent. She had over 50% of the vote. But I cautioned everyone back then, if you'll remember this, um, I said, look, just because things are looking good now doesn't mean that things won't change. Because the establishment, the Democratic Party, they're seeing the same poll that we're all seeing. So all this is going to do is catalyze an all-out war against Nina Turner. And that's exactly what happened. Lobbyists came out in droves to try to stop Nina Turner. Hillary Clinton, Jim Clyburn all came out to stop Nina Turner. And guess what? The establishment's war on Nina Turner is working. It is very successful because now a new internal poll from her opponent shows that her lead has shrunk drastically. And now is the time to panic, folks. 
So as Ali Mutnick of Politico explains, Nina Turner opened an early lead in this summer's hotly contested Ohio special election, but the progressive heavyweight might not be running away with it. A new internal poll by her top competitor, Cuyahoga County Democratic Chair Chantel Brown, suggests the Democratic Party race has tightened. In the survey conducted in early July, Turner led with 43%, followed by Brown with 36%. That seven-point gap is a much closer spread than earlier polling from both candidates. An April survey from Brown's campaign found her trailing Turner by 32 points, 42% to 10%, and Turner's late May poll showed her with 50% of the vote, up 35 points over Brown. But now she is seven points behind Nina Turner. That is a huge swing. So if she made up that much of a gap, she can easily surpass Nina Turner given a few more weeks, within a few more weeks. So it is panic time. And if you were previously sitting out this race because it's Nina Turner and she's a political behemoth, she has more money and name recognition, now is the time to not take this race for granted. Now is the time to get involved. Donate anything if you can, even a buck or two. Support Nina Turner on the ground. Phone bank. Everything that you can possibly do to help Nina Turner, now is the time to do it because I'm telling you folks, the Democratic Party establishment isn't just going to allow her to walk to victory. I knew that when that gigantic lead was released, that was the beginning of the end of her status of just basically coasting. And it's not like she wasn't already fighting hard for this, but it's no longer going to be an easy fight. Now it's going to be a really difficult battle to try to overcome the entire Democratic Party and corporate establishment. Now, to show you what Nina Turner is up against, outright lies. So, this race, uh, you know, Nina Turner has basically been running on Medicare for All because it's very popular in this uh, heavy Democratic Party-leaning district. So, what are they doing now to counter that, since her opponent doesn't support Medicare for All? They're just lying about Nina Turner's position, and they're implying that she doesn't actually support Medicare for All. So, Ryan Grimm shared this mailer that was sent out by DMFI, which is Democratic Majority for Israel PAC, and it's a mailer that tries to suggest that Nina Turner is against raising the minimum wage and universal health care, and also she's against immigration reform as well. And you can see all of this right here. They're basically explicitly saying Nina Turner doesn't support raising the minimum wage. How awful is that? Nina Turner doesn't even support immigration reform. How awful is that? Priorities that you care about the most. Now, to say that Nina Turner doesn't support universal health care or immigration reform or raising the minimum wage, it sounds wrong because it's a lie. Now, the reason why they're saying that she's against these things is because she voted against the 2020 Democratic Party DNC platform. Now, ask yourself, why would Nina Turner vote against this platform? Well, it's specifically because it didn't contain the things that she wants. Medicare for all. But rather than pointing that out, they're saying, well, you know what? She actually doesn't support universal health care, even though Chantel Brown literally is against Medicare for all. Well, Nina Turner is the one who's actually against Medicare for All, and Washington Post reporter Dave Wagle breaks it down, saying, The letter claims that not supporting the 2020 DNC platform means you oppose universal health care. That's wildly dishonest. Sanders delegates, including Ro Khanna and Rashida Tlaib, opposed the platform explicitly because it did not contain Medicare for All. Now, he adds, Not every Sanders delegate voted no. There was an understanding that this was a protest vote of a platform that was not going to pass anyway. And basically, what they're trying to do is equate her with Donald Trump. Well, you see, Nina Turner said that voting for Joe Biden is like eating half a bowl of shit. 
rather than a whole bowl of shit with Donald Trump. So, you know, that's bad. She's really divisive. Americans came together to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So why is Nina Turner trying to be like Trump and divide Americans further? So they're trying to make it seem like she's Trumpian, when ironically, they're the ones who are being more Trumpian by explicitly lying about her positions. Nina Turner has been very consistent about her support for Medicare for All. It's been one of her main issues that she's running on in this race. But what do they do to counter that? Rather than just adopting Medicare for All themselves, they just lie and say, actually, Nina Turner doesn't support Medicare for All. And it's not just that the Democratic Party establishment is now coming out against Nina Turner. Now, the media is predictably joining the Democratic Party's smear campaign against Nina Turner. So the Daily Beast's Roger Solenberger writes, Democratic star Nina Turner blows pledge not to take lobbyist money. Flip-flop. Bernie Sanders' 2020 national co-chair Nina Turner said she wouldn't take lobbyist donations. Guess what happened next? And he writes, According to Federal Election Commission records, however, the Nina Turner campaign reported a March 31st donation of $1,000 from the director of Amer Public Affairs, a firm Turner founded last September as an offshoot of D.C.-based lobbying shop Mercury Public Affairs. And on January 19th, three days after her tweet, Turner accepted $250 from a partner at Mercury per FEC filings. Okay, so they're very clearly scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but let's just accept the author's argument here and let's let's agree. Nina Turner is a flip-flopper. She took Two problematic donations, one from a firm that she founded and another from a firm from an individual at a firm that she's associated with. So that's twelve hundred fifty dollars that are bad that Nina Turner should probably return. And not to mention that two hundred fifty dollars that she took. I mean, I've probably given more to Nina Turner myself. Uh, I'd have to check. But basically, I signed up to donate twenty seven dollars per month to Nina Turner. I've also bought merch and given her, you know, ten dollars here, fifteen dollars there. So, I mean, it's funny, like you can you can see how desperate they are, but let's just accept that Nina Turner flip-flopped on this position if we're being extra charitable to this author who's definitely not trying to smear Nina Turner. Okay, so Nina Turner flip-flopped on this issue here. She's still the better candidate, hands down by a mile and a half, because guess what? Her opponent not only openly accepts corporate PAC money and lobbyist money and a lot more than the amount that Nina Turner received, but she also publicly solicited donations from pro-Israel super PACs, and on top of that, she placed quotes on her website to show how pro-Israel she is, so that way this well-funded lobby would jump in the race and support her, and guess what? She did get them on board, because now they're smearing Nina Turner. That DMFI uh, mailer was sent out by the Democratic Majority for Israel, and I don't think it's a coincidence that she put a quote from the DMFI president on her website, basically saying, hey, come and support me, I'm pro-Israel, I'd love to have some of your support in this race and some of your money in this race so it's disingenuous it, it, anything that nina turner has previously done any little misstep that she makes even if we can say all right by by her standards perhaps this is something that's problematic perhaps nina turner should return those donations even though they're from individuals they're still technically you know their occupation is lobbyists so perhaps she should return these donations even if we accept the worst that they believe about nina turner she's still the best candidate in this race and would unquestionably uh, unquestionably be one of the best fighters in this country for the policies that they claim that she doesn't support so it's so desperate and you see their desperation but guess what it's finally paying off for them and look if you've been sitting out now is the time to get involved because here's the deal folks it's going to be nina turner or Chantel brown a progressive or a corporate Democrat who doesn't support Medicare for All, who shamelessly 
tries to solicit donations from the pro-Israel lobby while they were doing a bombing campaign in Gaza, executing civilians, children. So you have to ask yourself, do you want Nina Turner to take that seat and actually fight for progressive policies? Or do you want a corporate Democrat to take that seat? I think this is a very clear solution if you're a leftist. And any leftist who isn't getting involved to help Nina Turner here, I don't know what you're doing. So, I mean, we have to absolutely go to bat for Nina Turner now because her success here is in jeopardy. And her lead has basically disappeared. And at the rate that it is shrinking, it may be gone come election day. So, now is the time that we get involved. Don't kick yourself later. Get involved now and fight for Nina Turner if you want her to fight for you. It's that simple. This is easy to me. So I want to take some time to discuss what's happening in Cuba. By now, I'm sure that you are well aware of the fact that massive protests have indeed erupted in Cuba, and this really is substantial. It's significant, and I think it's an issue that a lot of people need to uh, inform themselves on. But the issue is that in the United States, where propaganda is so prevalent on any news network, regardless of which one you tune into, you're going to see disingenuous opportunistic bad faith actors apply a solution to the problem here before they even actually accurately assess the problems that led to the protests in the first place this is also going to be used to demonize the american left because since cuba is socialist and a lot of leftists self-identify as socialists then automatically this is proof that you know um your worldview is a failure so Regardless of, you know, wh what is happening in Cuba, the narrative is still going to be predetermined, right? So it's incumbent on leftists such as myself to push back on these narratives that are harmful and also violent because any calls for imperialism and intervention, that is inherently violent and is bad for the people of Cuba. But before we get to any of that, let's just establish some basic facts. So we have, you know, somewhere to begin. As Ben Burgess of Jacobin explains, on Sunday, the largest anti-government protests in at least 27 years broke out in Cuba. Thousands of people marched in the streets, chanting slogans. Others overturned police cars or looted stores. It's far too early to make definitive pronouncements about the political character of these protests. Quite likely, the people in the streets represent a mixture of factors with very different complaints and long-term agendas. One thing that is clear is that shortages in food, medicine, electricity, and other basic goods were the immediate spark for the protests. The stores that have been looted are controversial because they sell expensive products to foreigners who can pay in currency that most Cubans don't possess. American politicians who long to topple the Cuban government have been pointing to these conditions as they call for intervention. And these lawmakers are the individuals who I was referencing at the beginning of this video. They don't necessarily care what's taking place. They see that pain and suffering is happening and people are being deprived of basic uh, necessities. And they think, okay, well, now's the time. This justifies U.S. intervention. And there's several examples of this. Val Dennings, a Democrat, tweeted out, America stands for freedom. We must stand with the peaceful demonstrators in Cuba as they struggle for their not only freedom from tyranny and dictatorship, but freedom from disease, poverty, and corruption. The White House must move swiftly. Freedom shall and must prevail. So it's correct that there are food and medicine shortages in Cuba currently. 
But Val Dennings doesn't necessarily seem to care about why this is happening. She's just saying, look, all I know is that we have to move swiftly to liberate the people of Cuba. But she's not alone because Marco Rubio, a warmonger, tweeted out protests in Cuba aren't simply about shortages. Socialism promises guaranteed food, medicine, and income if you give up your freedom. When, as always, it fails to deliver, you don't get your freedom back. That's why the protesters are chanting Libertad. So, for individuals like Marco Rubio, the protests serve two propaganda purposes. First of all, it gives, you know, the United States government a justification to invade Cuba. But on top of that, it also can be an indictment on socialism. So that way, anyone who identifies as a socialist, Bernie Sanders, AOC, they're inherently bad because we just saw what happens in practice with a socialist government. Any failing of Cuba is also a blemish on the record of United States politicians and any leftist who is a socialist. Except that's not true. Contrary to popular belief, socialism and authoritarianism, these are not inextricably linked. In fact, socialism calls for freedom in the workplace. But I mean, if we're going to blame socialism here, then we can also be disingenuous on the left and we can say, all right, well, capitalism is to blame as well. Because it's a fact that the United States government has at least in part, if we're being really charitable here, contributed to the pain and suffering of the Cuban people. Now, the president of Cuba is, in fact, placing blame on the United States for the country's current situation, blaming the United States' policies of economic, quote, asphyxiation. And guess what? He's not wrong, because what's happening in Cuba is bad, and there's a reason why people are taking to the streets. They actually are suffering currently, because this is what they're dealing with. As Julia Conley of Common Dreams explains, as The Economist reported earlier this month, food exports from the U.S. to Cuba, which imports about 70% of its food and relies heavily on goods exported from the United States, recently reached their lowest level since 2002. Last month, The Intercept reported that the decades-long U.S. trade embargo against Cuba, as well as sanctions imposed by the Trump administration and kept in place by President Joe Biden, has kept Cuba from accessing critical foreign-made medical supplies to treat its own population during the pandemic, even as Cuba sent more than 2,000 medical professionals to help fight the global crisis in other countries. According to The Intercept, large shipments of ventilators, masks, and syringes have been unable to reach Cuba since the pandemic began due to companies' financial ties to the United States. Days before leaving office, former President Donald Trump designated Cuba as one of four state sponsors of international terrorism, along with North Korea, Iran, and Syria. The Biden administration has not lifted the designation, which restricts Cuba's access to international financing as its economy emerges from a massive recession, having slid 11% in 2020, The Intercept reported. So there's a lot of things that are contributing to the pain and suffering of the Cuban people. But anyone who oversimplifies this situation and simply blames socialism, this is not someone who is an honest actor. This is not someone who you should take seriously. So for those of you who don't know, Cuba right now is dealing with economic austerity because one of their main resources has been cut off from them due to a global pandemic. So tourism. Tourism uh, revenue from that is down. And on top of that, COVID-19 cases have exploded when they've been handling this pretty well up until this point. So you have that. And additionally, you have this embargo. So that way, when the pandemic actually gets serious and spreads throughout Cuba, well, what we're doing, we're stopping the country from getting basic medical supplies and food. So we are the ones who are hurting Cuba. 
So if you're going to blame the Cuban government for mishandling the COVID-19 pandemic and for the economic issues that the country is facing, you would be disingenuous. You would be a liar, I would argue, to not address what we've done, our role in this. So for anyone who, you know, responds to this by saying we stand with the Cuban people, unless their statement is accompanied with an explicit call to end the U.S. embargo, they're not serious. And the worst example comes from Joe Biden, who tweeted out, We stand with the Cuban people as they bravely assert their fundamental and universal rights, and as they all call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering. But I mean, the very first response to this tweet points out, 184 countries voted to end the destructive U.S. embargo on Cuba. Two voted to keep it, the United States and Israel. End the blockade or shut the fuck up. And that's exactly correct. If Joe Biden isn't actually going to end the U.S. embargo, then anything he says with regard to the concern that he's expressing for the Cuban people, it's a flat out blatant lie, right? And rather than actually moving towards ending the embargo, our government is now tacitly threatening the Cuban government, warning Cuba against violence targeting protesters. Now, it is the case that Cuba is a dictatorial regime. They are an authoritarian government, right? They don't really allow First Amendment freedoms that we have in the United States, freedom of speech. They're more authoritarian in terms of, you know, shutting down the internet. That's what they've done in response to these protests. And that's all, that's all terrible. That's bad. However, for the United States to say, oh, well, you know what? We're warning you, you better not be violent against your protesters. That's really funny, considering the way that we respond to protests here in the United States, where we actually have constitutional guarantees that uphold our freedom of speech, right? I mean, of course, you have states criminalizing BDS. You have Republican governors decriminalizing protesters being run over. And as Mac, good politic guy, points out once again, cops in the United States were literally intentionally running over protesters last summer. And as J. Cole adds, the Standing Rock water protectors would like a word with the administration. Yeah. So imagine a situation if, you know, Cuba responded to the way that the United States treated protesters that erupted after the death of George Floyd after he was murdered. Uh, you know, protesters in so many cities took to the streets. And imagine if Cuba said, we are warning the United States government to not respond with violence to its protesters, or we're going to intervene. I mean, that's not, that's not what the United States is saying explicitly, but that's the subtext, right? That's the implication. Imagine if Cuba said that to us. And that's not to say that the Cuban government is justified in cracking down on protests and shutting off access to the internet, but to suggest that their treatment of protesters is further justification that we should intervene in any way, shape, or form is incorrect here. What we need to do, if we truly care about the people of Cuba, is end the embargo. So because I don't hate myself, I chose to not subject myself to the inevitable stupidity that we were bound to see at CPAC 2021, so of course, I didn't watch it live. However, there were a lot of clips that popped up afterwards showing how unhinged the event was, and anyone who's surprised at the unhinged behavior that we saw on stage, you shouldn't be surprised because anytime you think that uh, CPAC is unhinged and there's a bunch of lunatics making insane points, just you wait because next year it's going to be even worse. And this year was no different, folks. So in no particular order, I wanted to showcase some of the dumbest moments from CPAC 2021, starting with QAnon conspiracy theorist Lauren Boebert, who um, did this weird political theater. 
government. We don't want your benefits. We don't want your welfare. Don't come knocking on my door with your Fauci outie. You leave us the hell alone. Tell me you're a lunatic without telling me you're a lunatic. Even in her mannerisms, like if she wasn't even talking about politics, like if I just saw her in public, I think that person has a few screws loose. Uh, not to be overly ableist, but I mean, folks, these people are these people are freaks. <laughs> I don't know how else to, to frame it. And I thought that AOC had the best response to this. She said via Twitter, tell them loud and proud, girl. GOP will strip your unemployment protections and dismantle any semblance of a public safety net we have left. Then make working people pay way more for everything on low wages while Wall Street gets a meal ticket. Good old conservative values, baby. And that's exactly it. Like all of these denunciations of welfare, they never talk about corporate welfare and how we subsidize the fossil fuel industry. We subsidize the wages of large multinational corporations who pay their workers such a small amount of money that they have to go on welfare. So rather than like pointing the finger at corporations and corporate greed in America, capitalism, they point fingers at the individuals and they say, oh, we don't care about, you know, big government. We, uh, we don't want your welfare, except, you know, really what she's saying there, if you read the subtext, it's rugged individualism for people and socialism for the wealthiest people, the corporations, which are not people, by the way, contrary to popular belief. Moving on, though, uh, Rick Scott apparently didn't get the memo that the hysteria over cancel culture is over. Conservatives have moved on. I mean, sure, it had a really good run. Mr. Potato Head, Cat in the Hat, all of these things were canceled. But now, all the rage is critical race theory. But uh, Rick Scott tried really hard to pander to conservatives there, but really what they want to hear about is how our children are being indoctrinated and they're learning about how white people are the devil in schools, not about how we're being canceled. Nonetheless, you can see him like desperately try to get applause here and, it, you know, they don't really care about what he's saying. Democrats want to tell us what to say and how to say it, or else we will be canceled from our jobs, our churches, our schools, our entire life. They want to cancel us. How many of you are not even sure what you can say right now? You're worried about what you can say will it be socially acceptable. I believe there's going to be a big backlash coming. It's going to come from all of us, and there's nothing the Democrats can do to stop us. Okay, so to be fair, he did get a little bit of an applause towards the end of that clip there, but um, I mean, I love this implication that it's really conservatives who are the true champions of freedom of speech and individuality and ideological diversity. It's not like you're all a hive mind of, you know, Trump-worshipping sycophants and you're in a cult. No, it's really, you know, they're the ones who are encouraging people to, you know, thwart what is, you know, common thinking in the united states he says here democrats want to tell us what to say how to say it or else we will be canceled from our jobs our churches our schools our entire life they want to cancel us basically if you didn't already know conservatives you're the victim and the left is coming after you i don't necessarily know what social clout the left has with churches uh nonetheless i don't think you're going to be canceled from your churches anytime soon conservatives um and he adds how many of you feel you're not even sure what you can say right now you're worried about what you can say will be socially acceptable and you know he's implying that it's only the left who will cancel you or scold you but why don't we put this theory to the test rick how about this you can say that the COVID 19 vaccines 
are incredibly effective and people in that audience should take the COVID-19 vaccines if they want to stop themselves from catching a highly contagious, deadly disease. He's not going to say that because he knows that that's not politically correct at CPAC. So it's not like Republicans are any different. And he wouldn't say something like that because he knows the way that the crowd would react. In fact, another speaker actually got applause from the crowd when he stated that the United States isn't meeting expectations with regard to COVID-19 vaccinations. Take a look. Clearly, they were hoping, the government was hoping, that they could sort of sucker 90% of the population into getting vaccinated. And it, and, and it, and it isn't happening, right? There, there's a... Y- younger people... I know that there's the Delta variant and the possible Lambda variant that's even more contagious than the Delta variant. But guess what, folks? We are not meeting our targets when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. Yay! Great. This is awesome. Great news, everyone. I mean, these people are absolute fucking psychopaths. They're, They're celebrating the fact that not enough people are getting vaccinated. It's just... It is absurd to me. I don't even know what to make of it. Uh, But on the subject of COVID-19, you could tell how deranged Republicans are when the South Dakota governor, Kristi Noem, talked about her failures when it comes to COVID-19 and her mishandling of the pandemic as if it's something to be celebrated. And she even denounced Republican governors who dare to take the pandemic seriously. We talk about rewriting history. Let's talk about rewriting history. We've got Republican governors across this country pretending they didn't shut down their states, that they didn't close their beaches, that they didn't mandate masks, that they didn't issue issue shelter in places. Now, I'm not picking fights with Republican governors. All I'm saying is that we need leaders with grit, that their first instinct is to make the right decision, that they don't backtrack and then try to fool you into the fact that they never made the wrong decision. Her state is consistently one of the worst in the country when it comes to new cases, new infections, uh, deaths due to COVID-19. And yet she's basically saying, I refused to take action during this pandemic, even though 600,000 Americans died. But I'm the hero. The individuals who instituted mask mandates, they're the ones who are actually uh, bad. It's like a celebration of death. And of course, that's to be expected from basically a psychopathic death cult, which the GOP largely is. And I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that. Like when you're literally celebrating your refusal to institute basic precautions to stop the spread of a highly contagious disease. Yeah, you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of a sick person. You're kind of sick in the head. But moving on to King Chud, of course, expectedly, he still is the uh, standard bearer of the Republican Party. A CPAC straw poll showed that he is dominating. So when it comes to the 2024 GOP primary, Donald Trump has a commanding lead with 70%. So he knows he's still the de facto leader of the Republican Party and nobody's even going to come close. And he bragged about that. On the Democrat side or the, I love my Republicans, but we're really kicking their ass too. But we love them. But we like it because they're friends of ours, right? So it's okay. I think we can say that affectionately. I mean, it's Trump. He's braggadocious. That's exactly what I uh, expected him to talk about of course and he's going to get even worse as the gop primary approaches but um in case you were wondering is he still peddling the big lie that led to the january 6th insurrection and the answer is yeah he's still telling people that he won when he didn't it's true 
We all won. We all won. Actually, you didn't win. You lost. And it wasn't even that close. So, you know, if, um, if you don't know by now that Donald Trump is a compulsive liar, then I don't know what to say. Maybe you're a sycophant. But perhaps if his loyalists heard him admit that he's a liar, then maybe they'd have a bit of a change of heart. Thankfully, he did admit that he's a liar, and he lies a lot when it benefits him uh, when it comes to politics. By the way, you have a poll coming out. Unfortunately, I want to know what it is. They, you know they do that straw poll, right? Now, if it's bad, I, diso- I say it, it's fake. <laughs> if it's good, I say that's the most accurate poll perhaps ever. Of course, when he admits that he lies to benefit himself, they laugh. I almost forgot that we were dealing with a cult for a second. It's just, if a politician that I was supporting admitted that they lie when it serves their political narrative, I would not support that individual. Even if I agreed with them on policy, like if Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner admitted that they make things up to create a sort of narrative, it, I would really struggle to support them still because that's bad. Like, I want people in America to believe in facts and empirical reality. And so long as we're knowingly spreading lies, you know, it's it's bad for society. It's unhealthy for democracy. But I mean, of course, they just, they love him more. They think it's funny that he lies. So, I mean, there's not much left to say. I could probably show you a dozen more clips, but you get the point. Every year, CPAC gets progressively more stupid and unhinged and this year obviously was no different and i could only wait to see what uh, the next cpac has in store for us but you know we don't necessarily have to look to that because if you really want like a showcase in gop stupidity the 2024 gop primary which will start promptly in 2023 that's going to be like quintessential gop stupidity on uh on focus except maybe it won't go on that long because again donald trump really has a stronghold on this party so we'll see what happens but um yeah every time i i uh, i see one of these events i get a little bit more misanthropic and the humanist in me dies a little more and you know the misanthropist in me you know takes over a little bit but i'm fighting it's like a battle between good and evil it's like a battle to not give up all hope in my mind there's like an angel and a demon on each shoulder and one is saying mike human beings are stupid we're not going to make it and the other is saying no this isn't you know everyone in america this is just a small um albeit large vocal minority it's just it's a battle and either way regardless if you know the the um angel or demon on my shoulder wins i still get a little bit more depressed each time from from these events it's just it's sad to see you know um stupidity put on display and, and celebrated so in the event gavin newsom is successfully recalled caitlin jenner is mounting a campaign against him she wants to be the next governor of california and she's a republican now it's interesting to me that she is a republican considering the fact that the republican party has made it abundantly clear that they hate people like caitlin jenner they hate the lgbtq plus community and especially they hate trans people and i don't think it's hyperbolic to use the word hate 
given their actions. So just this year, they've passed more bills banning trans high schoolers from school sports, banning trans-affirming healthcare for transgender youth than in recent years. So they've made it abundantly clear they want nothing to do with the trans community, and every action that they take is to further hurt the trans community. But still, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, she has class solidarity, and since she's a rich Republican, she acknowledges that, you know, the tax cuts... They come at a price. Sure, it is the case that Republicans hate trans people, but those tax cuts are really, really nice, and she wants them to keep coming. So she's even gone so far as to throw her own community under the bus, saying, mm, actually, it is about fairness if we ban trans high schoolers from school sports. <coughs> yeah. So that is what uh, moral depravity looks like, folks. But even though Caitlyn Jenner has tried to carve out some space within the Republican Party and prove to folks that, you know, there is room for a transgender woman in the Republican Party. What do they do? How do they treat her? Well, like this at CPAC, where transphobes will literally follow her around, dead name her, and call her transphobic slurs. Take a look. Excuse me, Bruce. Bruce. I don't want to picture Bruce. Bruce. Bruce, what do you think about the stuff that they're teaching in the schools? Hey, Bruce. Bruce, what do you think about the stuff that they're teaching in the schools regarding the LGBTQ? About Jesus Christ, Bruce. Don't forget about Jesus. Look at that sick freak. Why do people? Why do people want a picture with him? I don't get that. These are conservatives, right? This is what we came to. Why do we want a picture with a tranny? Why do we want a picture with a tranny? It's supposed to be conservatives. I'm gonna go ask these people. Now, um, if that wasn't bad enough, you know, this kind of blew up. That video went viral. And you have uh, transphobic Republican lawmakers basically condoning the hate that she received at CPAC. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted out, GOP support and consultants working to elect Jenner for governor in California are playing the left's stupid identity politics game, a game that sells out our faith, family, and freedoms. Stop promoting this man in a dress and a never-Trumper. California patriots worked too hard and deserve better. This is what they think about you, Caitlyn Jenner. To consistently try to align with a party that wants nothing to do with you and hates you, that is an abusive relationship by definition. And just you existing, being a Republican, running for governor as a Republican, as a trans woman, you know, Marjorie Greene says that that's selling out the Republican Party's faith. She called you a man in a dress it's morally reprehensible. They are outspokenly and explicitly transphobic. So Caitlyn Jenner has to bear some responsibility here. I mean, of course, the way that she's being treated, even if I unequivocally disagree with her politics, is unacceptable. Regardless, Caitlyn Jenner, as a trans woman, should be respected. Trans women are women, and the people who are abusing her are disgusting scoundrels. But if you think that folks like Marjorie Greene are an exception 
then think again. You've been horribly mistaken. Now, some individuals in the Republican Party who are prominent have actually condemned the treatment of Caitlyn Jenner, one being Tommy Loren, saying, hearing how some conservatives treated Caitlyn Jenner at CPAC makes my blood boil. I like how she put conservative in quotes, suggesting that like if you are anti-trans, you're an exception to the rule. That's hilarious. There's no room for your hate in the America First movement. Laughable. We believe in freedom and we believe in limited government. The way she chooses to live her personal life harms you in no way. Yes, because everyone knows one of the hallmarks of Trump's America First movement is inclusion and equality. And notice how she's still, like, as she's trying to defend Caitlyn Jenner, makes it seem as if her being transgender is a choice. She adds, the conservatives attacking Caitlyn for her personal choices attacked Trump for his and declared him to be adverse to Christian values. They were the bulk of the Never Trump pearl-clutching movement that suddenly became real quiet when his policies worked. Laughable. Save your BS. I don't support Caitlyn Jenner because she is trans. I agree with most of her policy ideas and know she will fight for California. She's also a kind human and more conservative than half the people with R's in Congress. I don't care how she identifies. She is more than that. Freedom first. Now, despite the multiple microaggressions towards transgender people and Caitlyn Jenner in these tweets, at least if we're trying to be charitable, we can say it looks like Tommy Loren is trying to grow. This is her taking a shot at individuals like Marjorie Greene and standing up for trans people. This is good. This is an improvement. Except mm, she's not the trans ally that you want her to be or hope that she would be because as this person points out, Squiddy on Twitter here, she's made a plethora of explicitly transphobic comments in the past, including this year alone. So this is another one of those cases where it's like, okay, I... I'm a Republican who doesn't support anything unless it affects me personally. So because she's presumably friends with Caitlyn Jenner and knows her on a deeper level, well, she doesn't want transphobia directed at her friend, but transphobia on a broader scale is what she promotes herself. She just doesn't want her friends who are transgender to be subjected to transphobia. The conservative movement is a lost cause. It's a lost cause, and anyone like Caitlyn Jenner, who's trying to hitch her wagon to this movement when they, again, have made it very clear that they want nothing to do with her and when their allies have gone out of their way to demonize transgender people. I mean, what are you doing, Caitlyn? What are you doing? Okay, you're economically conservative. Of course, transgender people don't have to be liberal or leftists. But I mean... This is gross. Like, you look like a masochist to keep identifying with this party. They want nothing to do with you, Caitlin. And if you can't see that by now, then I don't know what to say. How many more times do they have to heckle you? How many more times do they have to refer to you as a man and dead name you before you get the hint that this party is disgustingly bigoted? They still haven't embraced gay marriage. In fact, in the 2020 Republican platform, I believe... They wanted to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges. They want nothing to do with the LGBTQ plus community. So unless you accept their position that you are inferior, that dehumanizes you, you're not going to be welcomed. Even if you accept that as you did, they still might not welcome you because they don't like that you're transgender. It's disgusting and just honestly repugnant, but it's expected. These people are freaks and they're bigots. You should shun them, not try to embrace them and cozy up with them. 
CNN reporter Danielle Sullivan attended CPAC and he interviewed some of CPAC's attendees and what he's going to share is some interviews and on top of that he's going to kind of give you his breakdown as to what the general consensus was at CPAC with regard to the big lie and it's not really the most surprising outcome but what he's going to say here is really really bad and depressing because it doesn't necessarily bode well for the long-term health of our democracy nonetheless We'll watch and then I'll discuss when we come back. It was very much uh, the Trump show here in town this weekend. We spoke to a lot of people, um, probably 20 or 30 people. Every single one of them, pretty much everybody, uh, believed that both the election was stolen uh, and also um, lies about the insurrection. I mean, it is quite sad when, you know, speaking to so many folks who have bought into this conspiracy theory about the election, which is now undermining their fate in American democracy. You know, so many folks told us as well that they might not even trust uh, the results of the next year's midterm elections. Uh, do, do you accept he lost the election? I accept that on paper things happened to make it appear that way. I'm, I, I don't know what would have happened. Right. I find it very questionable that he lost, given the support that he had. Do you think what happened on January 6th was a stain on Trump's presidency? Absolutely not, yeah. He didn't invoke any kind of violence. He didn't say anything that was making... That was all just... Just honestly ridiculous. A few people acted out out of millions of people that attended, or well, I wouldn't say millions, but most close to a million. Yes, I would. I'm a Trump supporter. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you accept that he lost the election? Yeah, he did lose the election, but we believe, I believe, uh, there are some discrepancies, and those will be revealed at some point. What are you hoping to hear from Trump? Uh, that he is going to uh, regain his rightful seat as president. In 2024? No. When? As soon as the election is overturned for the election fraud. Do you guys think the election was fair? No. 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 They tried to tell us the Tarrant County election. We went blue for the first time since 1962. It's not called an insurrection to me. What about it was an insurrection? They stormed the Capitol. Who? Who's they? The Trump supporters, right? Bullshit. I mean, I'm sorry. Bullshit. You don't know who those people were. No, some Trump supporters were invited in. And there's video and there's audio that they said, come on in. So a lot to unpack there, John. Um, You did hear from one woman who mentioned that Trump could come back before 2024. And we know that was a concern of uh, the Department of Justice last week, uh, who said, you know, this sort of talk, this fantasy that he could be reinstated uh, into office before 2024, somehow the the election could be overturned, that there was concerns that that could provoke uh, further violence. Most people we spoke to, um, you know, at CPAC this weekend did not believe that this um, reinstatement thing would actually work out most are focused on looking towards 2024 but john pretty much everybody we spoke to uh believed the election was stolen so that last line was bittersweet to me because i was beginning to think that there was really a large portion of people who actually believed the lie spread by lunatics like mike lindell that trump would be reinstated in august but thankfully that's like a small fraction of people there but still he says that pretty much everybody we spoke to believed the election was stolen that is really really bad and there's been polls that kind of um give us a little bit of insight into how prevalent 
belief in the big lie was. And you'd hope that over time, you know, as the anger uh, over the election kind of dies down, maybe they come to their senses and start to re-examine their beliefs and realize that they were duped by misinformation. But no, they still believe in the big lie. And it's really, it's sad because Trump is such a narcissist who refused to accept that he lost. And rather than just like admitting it and owning up to it, he decided to throw democracy under a bus to save face. And that's, that's bad. Like the fact that these people no longer believe in democracy is a really, really bad thing because in order for democracy to work, people have to believe in it. People have to believe that their votes are going to count. And Trump got millions of people to believe that their votes didn't count. It was a sham election. And that is really bad. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't issues with our democracy. I criticize our democracy. I criticize, you know, the fact that there's voter suppression. I criticize voter ID laws. I criticize our majoritarian first-past-the-post electoral system, which leads us to a two-party duopoly. I criticize the electoral college. But still, even if I have criticisms of our democracy, that doesn't mean that the project itself is, you know, trash and we should just give up on democracy. Democracy is always going to be an ongoing effort, right? You're always working to further consolidate democracy. And the minute you check out and you think that this project is no longer worthwhile, that's when everything kind of starts to become undone. And that's really sad. So let's get to some of the reactions here. So one person said, I find it very questionable that Trump lost given the support he had. Now, I feel like now I don't, I would like to kind of like pick this woman's brain a little bit to see what she thinks. But I mean, the general belief, according to Donald Trump, and assuming she believes everything that Donald Trump says, is that Donald Trump was basically like treated more unfairly than any president in modern modern history. But at the same time, you know, even though he was treated so unfairly by the mainstream media and so many uh, political uh, bad actors. Well, he was so loved that it's not even possible that he he could lose this election. So it's a bit of a contradiction. Trump is somehow a victim of hatred, but also the most loved person ever uh, at the same time. And I, I don't think they realize how contradictory that seems. But that's not necessarily the worst thing that was said here in these uh, in these interviews. Another person says he lost the election, but there are discrepancies that will be revealed at some point. Okay, don't really know what that means. One lady hopes Trump will, quote, regain his rightful seat as president, and uh, not in 2024, but in 2021. It's already bad enough that Donald Trump, who incited a literal insurrection on January 6th, is able to run for president again. I mean, he, along with a lot of other former presidents, should be behind bars for the rest of their lives for crimes against humanity. But the fact that he's even able to run again in and of itself is an issue. But this person thinks that he's going to be reinstated in August, I'm assuming, in 2021. It's just to be that batshit insane, to be that detached from reality is very, very dangerous. So the last couple said the election wasn't fair. And the last two ladies... um were probably the most deranged because they refused to believe what was right in front of them. They refused to accept that the people who stormed the Capitol were actually Trump supporters. I mean, maybe the MAGA hats and the Trump flags were the giveaway for me, but what else? Like, what's the ulterior theory here? I mean, of course, if you ask them, they'd probably say, well, look, it was uh, Antifa because we've heard that even by sitting lawmakers like Matt Gates. So, you know, I, I don't know what to say. 
this is going to be a really, really long project to rehabilitate these folks, to bring them back to reality. And it's not going to happen if you share a humanist report video, even though you should definitely do that. But it's not going to happen that way in reality. Um, this is going to be a project where you you have conversations with these individuals one-on-one -on -one and you build up trust, you build a relationship with them, and you come at them uh, from a position of, of love and concern and you try to convince them that their entire worldview that they were duped into believing because of Donald Trump is a complete fucking sham. I mean, it's it's hard, right? But it's not impossible. I mean, I once believed in fairy tales. I was I was raised as an evangelical Christian, and eventually I was educated and I came to my sense my senses. But I mean, the thing that's missing here is there has to be like some willingness deep within to want to believe in the truth. And I think right now, in the short term, there's going to be too much cognitive dissonance that these Trump supporters aren't going to want to fight past. But if you have a family member that is a victim of QAnon, and I do call it victim of QAnon because this is basically a cult you have your work cut out for you i mean i don't even know how to have conversations with folks in my family who are conservative because it's not even like our worldviews don't align in any way shape or form their perception of reality differs from mine and i don't know how to reach people who are operating on an entirely different plane who exist mentally in a different dimension in an alternate universe i don't even know where to begin and you know after decades of psychological research perhaps we'll have some some uh, answers as to how we deprogram people but you know for the next couple of election cycles we're gonna have a lot of folks believe that donald trump is the rightful winner and that you know um up is down and left is right and it's just it's exasperating to think about how hard it's going to be to deconvert people, but it's going to take time, and I don't think that everyone is too far gone. There's going to be some people who, they're a lost cause, and you might as well give up on them. Some people just, they're not going to have a change of heart, right? But there are a lot of people who we can reach, and I think it's important that we do try to reach these people, try to deconvert them, try to bring them back to reality. I do think it's important because... Uh, you know, ultimately, I am a humanist. I am an optimist to my core, even if that optimism has been shrouded in in doomerism and, you know, sadness. But I do think it's worth a try, even if we fail. So Fox News was doing what I'm assuming was their 542nd segment on critical race theory for the week when a guest drops by far one of the hottest takes of 2021 if not a nuclear take that will live on in infamy for all of eternity i mean i don't even know how to properly introduce this segment it really is that bad and it's so ignorant that this individual who's arguing against critical race theory is going to inadvertently make the case for people who's pushing for education when it comes to racism and slavery in schools because it proves that if this level of ignorance is actually prevalent then we need to teach critical race theory and racism and history immediately. Like we have to start yesterday. That's how bad it is if this belief is actually widespread. But without further ado, let's watch the segment. Yeah, because they're, they're very invested in this whole idea that the nation was founded on the idea of systemic racism, that it's built into every single institution in America, even in the military. Um, folks are worried that this is something that they need to address within the military. And we just did a story about how the Navy is underprepared right now, but they're spending a heck of a lot of time on this. What do you think about that? 
it's absolutely absurd because nobody really wants to get the real history of it. America was not founded on racism. Uh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, there was slavery going on, but slavery itself was not initially a racist thing. It never was about race initially. So to sit there and take it like America was founded on racism, it's a complete lie. Yeah, there was slavery going on, but slavery was going on in all the world. It never was a race thing. So why are we making it a race thing now? Ty Smith, thank you for being here. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know that it's necessary for me to dignify that stupidity with a response, given that I don't actually believe that that person believes the foolishness that came out of his mouth. And if he does, then this is all the more reason to mandate education when it comes to slavery and racism and the history of such in schools. Um, because if this is what you believe, then uh, you're making my case for me. You're proving the critical race theorists right. It's just, uh, it's absurd. And I don't even understand the argumentation. So he says that slavery itself was not initially a racist thing. So at what point did it become racist? Was it like some SJWs who were like, hey, I'm realizing that it's only black people who are enslaved. I just, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around the logic here and, and it's just i'm drawing a blank i don't even think i should like respond to his argument as if he was making that in good faith but i mean we'll, we'll play along for a little bit the reason why your argument is absurd on its face is because racism and slavery are inextricably linked slavery is inherently racist black people were enslaved because it was believed that they were inferior to whites. It was literally in the US Constitution. It was actually codified into law that blacks were three-fifths of humans. The vice president of the Confederacy, as Cody Johnston shares on Twitter, literally argued that it was normal and natural for whites to enslave blacks because they were superior. But yet you're claiming that slavery wasn't initially a racist thing? I mean, I refuse to believe that you're serious. I, I refuse, I reject this notion that you're a good faith actor and you're just misguided to say something like that. And he repeated it like, you know, he didn't misspeak. He said it twice to actually argue that slavery wasn't racist initially is so absurd that nobody should take you seriously. But believe it or not, this individual is saying those silly things that he probably doesn't believe because he wants people to take him seriously. He's pandering to conservatives because he knows uh, that, you know, this is a really lucrative thing to pander to uh, white supremacists and conservative bigots in America. That is something that is incredibly lucrative. And this person, the only reason why he's on Fox News is because he went viral in a video where he showed up at an Illinois school board meeting and he denounced critical race theory and he went on this long rant that was totally not scripted, totally organic, totally not astroturfed. And it blew up. And now all of a sudden he has, you know, th this fame that fell into his lap. Except, you know, it's not that simple. He didn't become famous in conservative circles by starting out as a concerned parent. This is a YouTuber who started posting videos years ago. Now, it started off 
with him posting mostly apolitical YouTube videos where he talks about religion or fitness, basically innocent, benign subjects. And then he realized that there wasn't much clicks and views in that, so he pivoted to making React videos where he reacts to country music and other songs. But then he basically stumbled upon a gold mine where he realized that it's a lot more lucrative to pander to conservative bigots who want you to push the narrative that they're currently trying to push. And the narrative that they're all spreading right now is that critical race theory is bad. And all of his appearances on Fox News, on uh, RT, on all of these networks are shared on his YouTube channel. Oh, and that's not all. I don't think that it's a coincidence that he happens to be personal friends with Candace Owens, even going so far as to call her his little sister lovingly. So folks, let's call this what it is. This is a grift. He's being purposefully obtuse. He's pretending to be ignorant about basic facts, basic concepts that any adult with a functioning brain should be able to comprehend. Of course, it's the case that slavery is racist. To suggest otherwise, I mean, it really goes to show you how desperate conservatives are, that they will make fools of themselves to run cover for conservatives in this country who are just pushing an agenda. And, you know, this week it's critical race theory, next week it'll be something else. But he knows, this individual knows that it is very lucrative if you do what conservatives want. Because it's a lot more convenient when a person of color says racist things, so that way the white supremacists on Fox News don't get accused of racism. There's a reason why Fox News will bring on uh, lesbians or gay men like Dave Rubin to denounce LGBTQ plus equality. There's a reason why Fox News will bring on Candace Owens to tell you that the Black Lives Matter movement is a terrorist organization. It's because if they say it, well, you know, there's no plausible deniability. It doesn't look like a benign political assessment. It looks like they're making a racist statement. But if they have somebody from that community to throw their own community under a bus, well, then it's a lot more believable for propagandist uh, purposes. So this is just, it's, it's gross. It's disgusting. And, you know, this YouTuber might be making a lot of money for uh, saying these things and making a fool of himself but at the end of the day you still have to live with yourself you still have to you know um sleep at night and if the money helps you sleep at night great but this is just it's gross and you should feel gross for saying something not only that deeply hurtful and offensive but stupid as well so when it comes to his handling of COVID-19, I absolutely think that Joe Biden has done a really good job. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think that him supporting the TRIPS waiver to make a step towards ending vaccine apartheid, him uh, sending vaccines that are unused here overseas, it's all really important. But if we truly want to end vaccine apartheid and get everyone around the globe vaccinated, we have to put pressure on other countries who are holding everyone back. So we put pressure on Joe Biden, and now we have to put pressure on other countries who are standing in the way of progress. And one of the main offenders here is Germany. So there is a Biden-Merkel summit taking place this week on the 15th, 
and protesters are showing up to shame German Chancellor Angela Merkel ahead of her visit to demand that she stop supporting vaccine apartheid. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, ahead of German Chancellor Angela Merkel's visit to the U.S. later this week, public health campaigners on Tuesday floated a large banner in front of the White House calling on the European leader to stop blocking global COVID vaccines, a reference to her continued opposition to suspending big pharma-friendly patent protections. Organized by a coalition of U.S. civil society groups, Tuesday's demonstration was the first in a series of actions set to take place ahead of and during Merkel's July 15th meeting with President Joe Biden, who has faced criticism for not doing enough to pressure European allies to support a proposed patent waiver for coronavirus vaccines. Other actions planned this week include a protest at Germany's permanent mission to the United Nations in New York City on Wednesday, a die-in outside the White House during Merkel's visit on Thursday, and vigils at German consulates nationwide. While Americans and Western Europeans increasingly have widespread access to COVID vaccination, huge numbers of people around the world aren't expected to have access to a vaccine for years unless global production is dramatically increased, Arthur Stamoulos, executive director of the Citizens Trade Campaign, said in a statement. Everyday Chancellor Merkel delays global action on COVID vaccines, costs thousands of lives, and increases the chances of a viral mutation that can evade current vaccines and start the pandemic all over for everyone. The Merkel-Biden summit will not be a success, Stamoulis added, unless Germany agrees to support the TRIPS waiver and help end the pandemic. So I really like this. They are basically threatening to disrupt the Biden-Merkel summit if she doesn't have a change of heart. And I also think it is important to continue to pressure the Biden administration to put pressure on the United States' allies, because this is something that is absolutely crucial if we ever want to see an end to the pandemic. And currently, as it stands now, at the rate that we're heading, this pandemic is never going to be over. Because as Oxfam International reports, more than a million COVID deaths in four months since G7 leaders failed to break vaccine monopolies. At current vaccination rate, low-income countries would be waiting 57 years for everyone to be vaccinated. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think about the implications of this if we continue our vaccination at the current rate. The global population wouldn't be fully vaccinated until 2078 at the current rate. By then, I mean, <laughs> not only will many people alive today be dead, but additionally, how many different mutations that evade existing vaccines will pop up by then? It's unsustainable. Like this rate of vaccinations is incredibly unsustainable and obviously more needs to be done and there needs to be a level of urgency that there hasn't been yet. It's like people around the globe, leaders, they don't realize that this is a global pandemic. You can't just vaccinate wealthy nations and expect it to be over within a couple of years. You have to vaccinate the world because so long as the virus continues to spread, it increases the likelihood that a new mutation will pop up, as the article stated, that will uh, be more resistant to the vaccines. I just, I don't understand why these people are so dense. I mean, I do understand it, right? It's all about money. It's about big pharma and their control over countries, not just the United States, but European countries as well. But even these big pharmaceutical executives, they have a vested interest as human beings who run these companies to not want to see a pandemic go on forever. But I mean, at the end of the day, Financially speaking, that would be beneficial for companies like Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. So even if 
you know, as as human beings, it makes their lives shittier. Well, it increases profits for their companies. So they have no rush whatsoever to vaccinate the global population. And so long as they can keep producing these vaccines, you know, they uh, they're going to be doing really well. I mean, a large portion of Pfizer's profits is from the COVID-19 vaccine. So this is incredibly profitable and it's just it, it's unsustainable at this rate. Now, let's get some more details from that Oxfam report. They're citing the People's Vaccine Alliance. So, here's what they say about global vaccine disparities. New calculations from the Alliance, which includes Health Justice Initiative, Oxfam, and UNAIDS, found that last month, people living in G7 countries were 77 times more likely to be offered a vaccine than those living in the world's poorest countries. Between them, G7 nations were vaccinating at a rate of 4.6 million people a day in May, meaning if this rate continues, everyone living in G7 nations could be fully vaccinated by the 8th of January in 2022. At the current rate, vaccinated 63,000 people a day, it would take low-income countries 57 years to reach the same level of protection. Unacceptable. So I want to point you to a documentary that Vice put out about a month or so ago. I believe this was published after Joe Biden announced support for the TRIPS waiver. Um, so this talks about how what could be possible in the event we actually allowed other countries to reproduce their own generic versions of the current vaccines that we're using in the United States and in Europe. Take a look. European countries in the United States were able to purchase or pre-purchase tons of vaccine. And so we've got them, but a lot of people in the global south don't. Right, right. I think it's something like 85 countries, the poor countries, that won't see a vaccine until 2023. Wow. And this is why there's such a momentum to say, well, if we can get more manufacturers in, more suppliers, we could still, even if they only start producing at the end of this year, could still be that projection. Mm -hmm. And so to make more available vaccines, the idea is if the intellectual property could be shared, then manufacturers in other parts of the world could just spring up and start making Absolutely. them. Absolutely. So, you know, that's one component. Get the, get, the, get the barriers out of the way. Get as many barriers out of the way so that we can scale up supply. Now, it may be that only a certain amount of other manufacturers in the global south, for example, could produce these vaccines by themselves. Like, you know, the newer mRNA vaccines may require a little bit more effort, but some that we've spoken to think they can do it alone. Hmm. And then there are other issues like regulatory issues that they have to get the vaccine approved, the trial data. So it, the IP is a big part of it. We could get way further down the road if we remove some of those barriers. If we go as we're going now, when will some countries in the global south be able to have access to vaccines? Predictions are based on current supplies and, what, and the vaccines that are currently on the market. There may be some new ones that come into the market. We are talking about end of 2024, maybe early 2025, like the, the lower income countries. That's like in four years. Yes. That's a long time. That's a long time. And we could get new supplies in within eight, six, to, six months to eight months. If? If we suspended the IP, if we, if we all played together. Remember, there's 40 manufacturers in developing uh, part of the developing uh, country vaccine manufacturing network, and these are all a lot of many of these are pre WHO World Health Organization pre qualified for other vaccines. Yeah. They provide 3.5 billion doses for other, other uh, you know other other vaccinations that they make. So why can't we utilize that capacity? Now keep in mind when they say that um, some countries at this current rate won't have vaccines until 2024, 2025, that's just a reference to when they can start doing vaccinations. You can start, but if you're doing a thousand vaccinations per day, is that really sufficient? Of course it isn't. So that's why the pace that we're 
vaccinating people right now, it's it's way too slow. And it's not like just automatically, you know, all of the barriers will be lifted if the TRIPS waiver is approved by every single country. Of course, there are other things to consider, you know, the materials used to create these vaccines. But still, as the point that was made in, in that video by the TRIPS advocate is that you can't have any barriers up. We have to make sure that whatever manufacturers around the globe who are already incapable of reproducing these vaccines, we let them do that because we can't afford not to. I'll be honest, I am sharing the stories that I'm about to share with you because I want you to acknowledge the seriousness of COVID-19. It is highly contagious. It is deadly. And if you haven't vaccinated yourself by now, there's still time to change that before it's too late. And these stories here that we're going to share are people who regret their decision to not get vaccinated, or at least one of them regrets it because they're still here to feel regret. So the first story is about a woman who uh, was not vaccinated, who got a really, really serious wake-up call when she got infected with COVID-19. As Sky Palma of Raw Story explains, after a rough battle with COVID-19, a North Carolina woman who was unvaccinated is now urging people to get the shot, 13 News reports. I thought I was healthy enough that I could escape it, said Linda Edwards, who contracted the virus about three weeks ago. Really, it was the most frightening thing I've ever been through in my life. It's changed my whole life. I'll never be the same, Edwards said. I just thought, if I live through this, I want to go on a mission to try to help people see that it is not worth not taking the vaccine because of what it can do to your family. We could have easily have had two funerals. Only 34% of the people in the county where Edwards lives are partially vaccinated and 31% are fully vaccinated. According to Graham County Health Director Beth Booth, the vaccine hesitancy in the county is almost taken to another level. As for Edwards, she says she'll be getting vaccinated as soon as she can. And stories like this are really important because, you know, she is vocalizing the same sentiment that a lot of people, many people who you may know, uh, have, have expressed that they don't really want to get the vaccine. You know, they haven't got infected yet. They would rather take their chances. They don't necessarily know about the, uh, you know, the vaccines, what's in them. And sure, they've heard about the studies about how effective and safe they are. But yet there's a lot of doubts in their minds because of posts that they saw on social media. Stop. That's misinformation. Stop. Understand. Whatever fear that you feel about the COVID-19 vaccines, that is going to be nothing in comparison to the fear that you'll feel if you catch COVID-19. And this woman now, thankfully, is changing, and she's trying to get people to do what she didn't do. But that was actually a happy story, even though, you know, her life going forward, she says, will never be the same because I'm sure she's going to be dealing with the consequences uh, and the ramifications uh, of COVID-19 for a long time on her health. But um, another individual wasn't so lucky because a nurse from Louisiana who was also anti-vax, which is crazy to me because she is in the medical field, she died after contracting COVID-19. 
So as Travis Geddes of Raw Story reports, a Louisiana nurse who questioned the safety of vaccines has died of complications from COVID-19. Olivia Goudry, a registered nurse in the emergency department at Oshner Lafayette General, died Saturday after being hospitalized for the coronavirus in the intensive care unit, reported the advocate. Today is a sad day for my ER family and I, her colleague Nick Berthelot posted on Facebook. Your contagious laugh and smile will truly be missed, Liv. Until we meet again, sweet girl. Coronavirus deaths have decreased dramatically in Louisiana since last year, but the state has seen a recent increase that experts blame on its low vaccination rate of 36% compared with about 50% nationally, and Goodry questioned their safety on her own social media account. This vaccine has been released using recombinant DNA technology faster than any vaccine in the world Goodry posted on July 26th of 2020. It manipulates your DNA at the tiniest molecular level. That's not true. Do not get it. It's not safe. She also questioned pandemic safety measures and retweeted another account calling coronavirus tests fake. Quote, am I the only one thinking they are trying to see how much they can control us? She posted July 11th of 2020. We are a straight up social experiment. Both of Goodry's parents are currently ill with the coronavirus and she is also survived by a pregnant sister. So listen, this is a very young person, a very young person. And she died because she bought into the misinformation that is absolutely deadly. Let's call it what it is. This information that's being spread on social media, it is deadly. It's a killer. And if you are perpetuating the spread of this misinformation, you might be inadvertently responsible for somebody else's death if what you share gets through through to them and it convinces them, okay, I guess I'm not getting the COVID-19 vaccine. It's too late for her now. She can no longer change her mind. The decision to not get vaccinated now, it is what it is. That's that. Death is permanent. You can't go back from that. So do you understand? Like, even though I lambast anti-vaxxers and make fun of them, and scream at anti-maskers on this channel, at the end of the day, I want you to protect yourselves and be safe. That's why I, I do it. Because life is precious, life is short. So your penchant for conspiracy theories, your willingness to be duped by this misinformation that's being spread on social media, it is literally deadly. But if you're watching this video, it's not too late. If this woman were alive today, she would probably be uh, proselytizing as much as the first woman is, right? Screaming at the top of her lungs to get the vaccine. Everything that she shared was wrong. But it's really harmful. And especially like for someone to be a nurse and share this level of misinformation, it's even more harmful. I don't know how many people she convinced, right? But hopefully everyone around her knows now the seriousness of, of this disease, how deadly it is. And it doesn't matter if you're young and seemingly healthy. This is a killer, but it's not too late. We all want to go back to normal. This is not about control. This is not about inserting micro chips into your body. This is not about an attempt by the government for some reason to change your DNA. That's not what the uh, mRNA vaccines do. That's not the way that it works. Educate yourself with real with real information and not misinformation. No memes on Facebook. Actually, if, if you're scared, look up. The studies that show how effective and safe these vaccines are. If you think the vaccine is scary, then it's not as scary as getting COVID-19. 
So I hope that people will learn from these stories and grow. But unfortunately, some people are so stubborn that they're they're just not going to make that decision and they're going to change their minds once it's too late. And I hope that people see this and they think, okay, don't want to risk it. I want to get the vaccine to not just protect myself, but also protect others who are not vaccinated. Just do what's right so you don't regret it later. So at this point in time, vaccines are not mandatory at the federal level. You know, there are some uh, requirements at state levels. Private businesses might institute some requirements when it comes to vaccination status. But for the most part, it's a choice currently in the United States of America. So you would think that if Republicans actually cared about their base, they would be encouraging them to make the correct choice and to get vaccinated. But rather than doing that, rather than doing the sane and logical thing, they are playing into this anti-vax narrative and further making it seem as if people who are vaccine hesitant and anti-vax outright are actually the victims who are currently being victimized by a non-existent government boogeyman that will be showing up to your doors uh holding you down and vaccinating you i mean i'm being purposefully hyperbolic here but i want you to see some of the bills that republicans are introducing and passing around the country because the way that they are making it seem is as if uh discrimination against anti-vax individuals is comparable to people who have been discriminated against historically on the basis of race gender and sexual orientation they literally are trying to make anti-vax people a protected class in the united states this is the state of american politics in 2021 folks yeah so as caitlin owens of axios explains state republican lawmakers around the country are pushing bills at least one of which has become law that would give unvaccinated people the same protections as those surrounding race gender and religion it's basically a parody these bills would tie the hands of private businesses that want to protect their employees and customers but they also show how deep into the political psyche resistance to coronavirus vaccine requirements has become and how vaccination status has rapidly become a marker of identity the states with restrictions on vaccine requirements tend to have lower vaccination rates than those without such laws and cases are on the rise in several of them montana has made it illegal to quote discriminate on the basis of vaccine status Status, with some exceptions within the healthcare sector. The law prohibits businesses, governmental entities, and places of public accommodation, like grocery stores, hotels, or restaurants, from refusing to serve or withholding goods from anyone based on their vaccination status or whether they have an immunity passport. Employers aren't allowed to discriminate against or refuse to employ someone based on the same criteria. This is a civil rights statute. It absolutely is, Bagley said. What this law is saying is that a restriction directed at the unvaccinated is prohibited in the same way as you'd be prohibited from putting up a sign saying no Irish admitted. Other state laws are generally more limited in scope, although there's a wide variance. Alabama law, for example, prevents schools and universities from requiring coronavirus vaccines, prohibits vaccination as a condition of receiving government services, and bans businesses from refusing to serve someone based on their vaccination status. Now, more stringent laws like the one that we see in Montana are being introduced around the country, so this is very quickly becoming a thing because surprise surprise republicans don't actually have any policies to offer their constituents so what do they do they just endlessly 
virtue signal and pander. They scream about cancel culture and critical race theory. They try to fabricate some sort of political issue. They try to come up with solutions to problems that don't exist because they don't actually offer anything that will improve the lives of their constituents in a concrete way. And now they are treating people who are uh, not vaccinated, who are anti-vaxxers, as if there's some marginalized community when, in fact, that's that's not the case. And David Pakman put it best on Twitter. It's still legal to discriminate against people based on sexual orientation and gender identity in 20-plus states, but suddenly Republicans want to protect anti-vaxxers in the same way race and religion are protected. What a country. Yeah, what a country indeed. Listen, I shouldn't have to explain this, but I'm going to explain it. We're going to play their game, and I'm going to tell you why it is not the same as being uh, black or a woman or gay to be an anti-vaxxer. I feel like this should be pretty self-evident for functioning adults, but I mean, in our country, you know, the Republican Party is fighting for the civil rights of anti-vaxxers as opposed to people who are actually being discriminated against in practice so listen discrimination in and of itself is not an inherently bad thing right it has negative connotations but overall discrimination is a value neutral term i discriminate against barbers who don't cut my hair well right i'm going to choose a barber based on their ability to cut my hair to my liking i'm going to choose uh, restaurants and discriminate against restaurants who don't make food to my liking but the reason why discrimination against marginalized communities people who are uh black who are women who are transgender who are historically disadvantaged the reason why discrimination against them is immoral is because we're discriminating on the basis of immutable characteristics somebody doesn't choose to wake up in the morning and be a woman or choose to be black but you do however choose to be a moron and not get vaccinated that is a choice so for them to equate the struggle the fight for civil rights for women and people of color and the LGBTQ plus community with anti-vaxxers is so deeply offensive and profoundly stupid that um, I don't I don't even have the words to explain how disgusted I am with this. Um, first and foremost, there is no issue here when it comes to discrimination against anti-vax people. Sure, I mean in certain social circles, it might not necessarily be acceptable to be anti-vax. I mean I think that it should be socially unacceptable to not get vaccinated i think that we should pressure people in any way we possibly can to take a vaccine that is highly effective and safe to protect not only themselves but people around them but i mean to to suggest that these anti-vaxxers are like people of color what are we doing what are we doing republicans know what they're doing republicans know that they're just playing to their base they're throwing red meat to their base they're trying to make it seem as if you know they're, they're pro-freedom pro-individual liberty pro-civil rights when in actuality this party has been against civil rights at every step of the way throughout history covid 19 is a highly contagious deadly virus so the government actually does like it or not have the authority to mandate certain things if your liberty infringes on other people's rights right your liberty to f to swing your fist stops at my nose you don't have the right to do that is it a restriction of freedom 
Sure, you're technically losing freedom by not having the right legally to punch me in the face as much as you fuckheads might want to, but you can't legally do that. You can't, right? So if you are using your freedom in a way that is directly harmful to others during a global pandemic, then I think that the government has a right to mandate vaccines in many settings. Now, I'm not saying that we should knock on everyone's door and forcibly vaccinate them by holding them down. I think that the government should, at the federal level and at the state level, create incentives to want to make people do the right thing for their own good and the good of, you know, uh, the public, right? I think that vaccine lotteries are a really great thing. That's a good incentive to make people make the right decision and to stop being stupid. I think that to um, suggest that, uh, you know, private businesses should be allowed to ask for vaccination status if, you know, people who are vaccinated want to do normal things again, like go to concerts and whatnot. I think that that's perfectly fine. And to even have this conversation to me is insufferable because this is not a real issue and Republicans know this is not a real issue. So it's not like I'm trying to convince Republican lawmakers to stop being stupid. It's just that they're playing into the culture war. They're buying into the anti-vax hysteria and they're pandering to the worst within their base. And it's irresponsible. How many more people have to die before we realize collectively as a society that vaccines are important? And if we're not going to mandate them and forcibly vaccinate people, which nobody's advocating that, then we have to at least incentivize them. But states like Montana are saying, no, you can't do that because that's discrimination, actually. It's it's like, you know, you're, you're treating them as we treated historically marginalized groups, and, and that's bad. We don't want to, you know, repeat the same mistakes we made before, right? So let's learn and let's treat anti-vaxxers as if they are a protected class. But that's not the case. They're not marginalized. They are stupid, and they're choosing to make reckless decisions that are a danger not just to themselves but their peers that's not the same when you're a woman or you're gay being gay isn't a danger to your peers that's why these groups are not the same the fact that i have to explain this um it uh, makes me lose more faith in humanity but i mean look republicans will um They'll come up with any anything if it means that they can distract from the serious issues that are actually uh, really important, such as climate change. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the healthcare crisis in America because our privatized healthcare system is exactly the way that they want it. They don't want to talk about the housing crisis because they think that housing should be, you know, commodified. Uh, they don't want to talk about money in politics because they benefit from, from legalized bribes. It's just so they're going to continue to create these sort of issues that are completely uh not real issues uh because it gets people talking and their base loves it and, and you know it's an easy way for them to cultivate support meanwhile uh what they're doing is harmful and i do think it's important that we call them out because this is this is just it's wrong on so many levels you, my friend, are very lucky to have clicked on this video because I have a treat for you today. We are going to learn about conservative country music sensation Buddy Brown. Now, Buddy Brown wouldn't have even been on my radar had Ben Shapiro's news outlet, The Daily Wire, not run a profile about him. Now, The Daily Wire, for those of you unaware, they do profiles on all of the hottest music sensations in the world of conservative politics. Just like a month or so ago, they ran a profile on conservative rapper Tom McDonald. Yes, a conservative rapper is as cringeworthy in practice as it sounds on paper, uh, but they're going to teach us about 
Buddy Brown. So they write via Twitter, meet the conservative country singer who turned down woke record labels and is still topping the charts. So I find that really impressive. Not only is he a conservative country singer, but on top of that, he is principled as well, seemingly, right? Because he's turning down woke record labels. Now, I don't know what turning down woke record labels means. Like, it implies that he was offered a deal, but the caveat was that if they're going to sign him to this record label, he has to do, to do at least, like, uh, three songs about feminism and political correctness and be uh, explicitly anti-racist, put pronouns in his Twitter bio. I don't know what turning down a woke record deal means. I don't necessarily think that any of the stipulations with regard to these contracts uh, are even going to reference politics whatsoever um but having said that though apparently he turned down a lot of woke record deals these record labels are trying to uh approach him but he's saying you know what i have to abide by my own principles and i've got to chart my own path here so i mean kudos to him so i wanted to read you the article but unfortunately uh you click on the link and it takes you to the daily wires website where you have to create an account now knowing that all of you won't want to create an account i took the liberty to create an account so i could read it to you using my fictitious email of course futbucker69 at aol.com now unfortunately for me once i created this fake account i was met with a paywall because even if you create a free account you can't actually read the article so the question is if the daily wire wants me to learn about this rising star in conservative country music i mean why are you putting it behind a paywall let my futbucker69 at aol.com account suffice and let me just read the fucking article usually what uh, news outlets do is they give you like at least five articles to read per month before they force you to create an account and and pay for articles but that's neither here nor there since we can't learn about buddy brown through the daily wire we're gonna do our own research and just look at his lyrics now i do have to call into question their reporting because they claim that he's a topping the charts he's a musician that's like topping the charts constantly that's the implication but as one of the first replies points out that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case i mean his song i called bs on that made it to number nine on u.s heat and 22 on u.s country so i mean that's pretty impressive his other hit single keeping it country sounds very original made it to 49 on u.s heat but i mean in terms of whether or not he's a chart topping uh country star that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case so upon further review i did find his youtube channel and he does have some bangers now we can't listen to them on this channel because i'm assuming that there's going to be some sort of a copyright strike um i don't know but these are the songs that really caught my eye all my exes change their sexes looks like uh i mean a phenomenal song i'm guessing it's for the clubs uh there's a liberal in my family i mean imagine that the offended song featuring cat in the hat and mr potato head i pulled lyrics for this one so we'll look at that and also what i'm guessing is uh one of the more popular songs we gotta be less white so i mean needless to say i am incredibly intrigued so uh we're gonna look at some of the lyrics since we can't actually watch the music videos so the first song we're gonna look at is if this country had balls now you'll all have to help me out in the comments because reading this myself it seems like he's explicitly calling for vigilante justice and extrajudicial murders in this song um but let's let's look at it together so it's time we go back to hanging them high he's not talking about his nuts let's light the torches in the middle of the night okay somewhere along the way we've gotten way too soft we don't need a jury when we've seen 
what he's done. I kind of feel like if you are an American patriot, as he claims to be, um, you shouldn't be denouncing our judicial system. You should ask that it be uh, come a lot more equitable. But I mean, he's just like, look, if we know somebody's guilty, let's just fucking let's kill him. Uh, just build the gallows and wait for the sun. Get the vigilantes loaded up with justice for all. If this country still had balls. Okay, so what I can deduce by these lyrics is that he's kind of a psychopath, but I don't want to judge too much because there are other songs that I want to get to. So the song Be Less White to me is really interesting because he starts off talking about Coca-Cola, which I'm assuming he canceled. So let me get to the lyrics here. Coca-Cola's done lost their dadgum, dag, dadgum, what the fuck, dadgum minds. Coca-Cola, maybe if I read it in like a country accent, it'll make more sense. Coca-Cola's done lost their dadgum minds. It actually, it, it is a little bit easier to uh, say it with an accent. Yeah, the white guilt's hitting pretty hard this time. I thought I'd seen it all, but as it turns out, I have to change my skin to live this one down. So it seems as if he's talking about um, his uh, history of persecution as a straight white male in America. And to this, he has nothing but my, um, my sympathy because it must be very difficult to be a very popular, I'm assuming wealthy country musician in America. We gotta be less white, be less white, Cause liberals gone wild and they lost their minds. We gotta be less white, be less white. Now I'm <laughs> now I'm switching to Pepsi, and it's all all right. <laughs> I mean the segue there, um, a little bit sharp for my my taste. We gotta be less white. We gotta be less white, and we've gotta switch to Pepsi. What the actual fuck? <laughs> they said to be less white is to be less oppressive. Be less certain and less defensive. Be less arrogant. Try to actually listen. Well, Coke ain't getting served in my kitchen. <sighs> I'm not... I'm not getting the controversy with Coke versus Pepsi. I mean, maybe he's just a really big Pepsi fan. I don't get how he like is trying to shoehorn in this criticism of Coca-Cola while simultaneously complaining about how difficult it is to be white. I'm not like, there's a disconnect for me and it doesn't make sense to me. It seems incoherent. Uh, but I mean, the overall takeaway seemingly is that it's really hard for him to be white. And something that Coca-Cola did proves that um they lost their dadgum minds okay one more song this is the offended song uh, for whatever reason this song title breaks my brain he should have just called it offended and not the offended song because it's like grammatically it, it is weird but anyways how dare tom brady win a super bowl with the bucks right in the middle of black history month was anybody actually mad at that how how children's books not have diverse cartoons because everything is canceled, including Dr. Seuss. Oh, he, somebody's been watching Fox News. Um, dumb fuck. I don't know if you got the memo, but Fox News was canceled by none other than, or excuse me, Dr. Seuss was canceled by none other than Dr. Seuss. They literally made the decision on their own volition to pull some books that they thought had insensitive and racist imagery. Nobody like told them, hey, these books are raci racist. You should take them down. They chose to do that. 
by themselves. So like in five years, if you see this song, uh, the, the Be Less White song, and you think maybe that was a little bit cringeworthy, I should take it down, is that you getting canceled? No, it's just you being introspective and trying to grow, assuming you ever want to grow. I hope so, but I mean, uh, who knows? Common sense equals Facebook jail. I'm assuming he was banned from Facebook. Um, okay. I mean, all right. Um, more context is needed there. They're all offended because they're crazy as hell. It sounds... Okay, so all the virtue signaling about cancel culture, he tries to give you this impression that like everyone around him is super offended, but really, he seems like the snowflake. Like He seems like the whiny little bitch who won't shut the fuck up about how mean everyone is to him. Like You seem to be the one that's really hypersensitive, my dude. Have some self-awareness. Holy fuck. Okay, this is the course. Yeah, this is the course. Okay, I work hard they're offended. That is offensive to me, actually. Raise my kids, they're offended. Don't you fucking dare raise your kids, you fucker. <laughs> Drive a big old truck because <laughs> I work with my hands. Go to church, they're offended. Raise a flag, oh, so offended. Oh, I hate it, guys, when they, <laughs> when they raise a flag. Sing the national anthem as loud as I can. Oh, don't do that. That's that's really going to offend me. Stand for God, country, family, and beer. Yes, one of the main core values of America, beer. Uh, it's a full-time job staying normal as hell out here. How dare Mr. Mr. Potato Head say he's a man? Okay, so he's bringing in like this culture war that is being uh, astroturfed by Fox News and the right. Uh, how dare you start a business, make money, and a plan? You know, is anyone else a little bit irritated by how people are so offended by people starting businesses? I mean, how fucking dare you start businesses, America? So bad. How dare the earth be round? How dare the sky be blue? I'm sorry, but you don't get to, uh, you know, invoke crazy people who are conspiracy theorists when it when it's your side who are overwhelmingly super conspiratorial i'm guessing this dude is an anti-vaxxer so don't talk about like how flat earthers are crazy when you're probably like as equally idiotic how dare you not be woke enough to bitch about it too i work hard they're offended okay we're back to the course i'm gonna read the course again because i think it actually is a uh, very poignant raise my kids they're offended again don't you fucking dare raise your kids buddy how dare you Listen, buddy, buddy, zoom in on me a little bit, buddy, you raising your kids offends me, mega cringe, drive a big old truck, because I work with my hands, do you though, because you, like, you're a YouTuber, this dude has more subscribers than I do, so I'm assuming that, like, you're not going to your 9 to 5 anymore, so I don't think you, you work with your hands, if you do, then, then great. Uh, go to church, they're offended. Raise a flag, so offended. Absolutely. Okay, so this is the very last line in that song. If you don't want to tear every statue down and sing Kumbaya till we all pass out. Okay, so that's it. Um, we're not going to look at any other songs. Basically, this is the country version of Tom McDonald but somehow even more cringeworthy than Tom McDonald because Tom McDonald is at least a little bit more subtle in the way that he virtue signals to conservatives. And um, he also, I, I think lyrically speaking, is a little bit more talented. But this individual, like he's really, he's scraping the bottom of the barrel. He's like, okay, I see that 
conservatives were angry about Mr. Potato Head and Cat in the Hat, I'm going to include that in my songs. It's only a matter of time before he makes a song, or an anthem rather, about critical race theory and how it teaches you to hate white people or some bullshit like that. Either way, I'm incredibly ecstatic that The Daily Wire put him on my radar. I will be following the musical career of Buddy Brown. And look, man, stay principled. Don't take any woke record label. Make sure that you read the fine details. You have, you know, a lawyer go over that contract with a fine-tooth comb because you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you sign a contract and then all of a sudden you are forced to transition from heterosexual to homosexual. That's possible. I mean, there's many contracts that force people into being woke. So make sure that you read the fine details, uh, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, and uh, yeah, stay anti-woke, brother. Keep, uh, keep doing a good job complaining about being, or how hard it is to be white, I guess. Jesus Christ, folks, we live in the dumbest country on the planet. I mean, imagine unironically being conservative. Mega cringe. Mega fucking cringe. So, earlier this year, we actually received some positive news from the Biden administration as it relates to foreign policy, and it has to do with one of the most egregious human rights violations that our government is propagating abroad. Drone strikes. So, the New York Times reported Biden secretly limits counterterrorism drone strikes away from war zones, requiring higher level approval is a stopgap measure as officials review whether to tighten Trump era targeting rules and civilian safeguards. Now, this is a bit vague and we're not going to get into that article, but essentially at that time, if you read that article, I think the um, reasonable response was to kind of wait and see what happens, right? Uh, the implication is that he'd be scaling back drone strikes, but by how much, that was not necessarily to be determined. But if he does less drone strikes than Donald Trump, who ramped up drone strikes almost exponentially after he took office, then that in and of itself would be a victory. But now we're getting a little bit more information about how much Biden has scaled back his administration's use of drones. And the preliminary uh, information that we have suggests that he scaled it back significantly. And... To me, as someone who, I mean, my political development um, centered on drones in 2015 when I had to write a graduate paper on the destruction caused by drones, this is a really, really positive development. So, as Michael Hirsch of Foreign Policy explains, in August of 2020, the man who is now U.S. President Joe Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, Jonathan Finer, co-wrote a privately circulated memo titled Ending the Forever Wars, written with two others who have since joined the Biden administration, Christine Abizaid and Brett Rosenberg. The memo laid out a detailed program for extricating the United States from the two-decades-long campaign dubbed the War on Terror that began on 9-11. Six months into Biden's presidency, the administration has said little about its longer-term plans in dealing with Islamist terrorist groups around the world, apart from announcing the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And yet airstrikes by drones and other U.S. kinetic operations in trouble spots around the world outside conventional battlefields have dramatically dropped since Biden took office. The president imposed a partial moratorium as his team conducts an intensive review of every aspect of America's global counterterrorism efforts, which have spread over two decades from Afghanistan 
Sudan post 9-11 to Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Libya, Somalia, and parts of the Maghreb, Southeast Asia, and West and Central Africa. As the Finer Memo notes, one of the recommendations enacted from the memo is to raise the threshold for use of force. This includes eliminating strikes against individuals whose specific identities are not known, these are signature strikes, and who are not identified as tied to immediate U.S. force protection concerns or otherwise posing as imminent threat to United States, as the memo puts it. No truly reliable figures exist, especially for drones, since for most of its existence, the drone program has been shrouded in secrecy. In his final year in office, President Barack Obama briefly opened the window, revealing that during his term, drone strikes, conventional airstrikes, or cruise missiles used outside conventional war zones like Afghanistan had killed as many as 116 civilians. But other independent monitors put the figures much higher. Obama's successor, Donald Trump, made the numbers classified again. The cutback in drone strikes is one element of a much bigger rethink. One Biden administration official who has been involved in discussions said that while a policy isn't yet set, and it's not clear when it will be, the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11 is an important target date in what is amounting to an exhaustive evaluation of the overseas terrorist threat. So keeping in mind that we don't have exact numbers and figures at this point, this is really, really good news. The article is reporting that drone strikes are at an all-time low since the drone wars have been initiated, and I would like for them to stop entirely. But to bring them at an all-time low, which obviously suggests lower than when Obama left office, that is a really good sign, and Biden absolutely gets credit for this. Countless lives are being saved because he's scaling back drones, at least for now. Now, we still kind of have to wait to see uh, about the outcome of their assessment. Right now, it's a temporary partial moratorium, but still, this is a really, really good sign. And that's not to say that I agree with Biden on his foreign policy overall. I have huge disagreements with Joe Biden. I mean, this individual started uh, the war on terror. He voted for the Iraq war. And on top of that, as president, he's bombed uh, Syria twice, He's basically doing a proxy war with Iran in Iraq and Syria. And, you know, on top of that, he, uh, as I record this video right now, his press secretary isn't ruling out sending troops to Haiti as a result of the assassination of their president. So there's a lot to critique with Biden when it comes to foreign policy. But here, when it comes to drones, one of the most egregious human rights violations propagated by the U.S. government that's this is great news objectively speaking this is really good news that biden deserves a lot of credit for this is excellent news now to me uh i essentially lost faith in obama like the wake-up call that i got was when i learned how extensive his use of drones and signature strikes were and you know i i read articles about the victims of drones in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia that haunt me till this day. You know, it's not just that there are victims that are killed by these drones, but children in other countries like Pakistan, they have PTSD because of the buzzing that they hear from drones. They feel as if they're being hunted. They feel as if, you know, whenever it's a sunny day, they don't want to go outside because the drones will be patrolling. People there know of other individuals who have been killed by U.S. drones. We've drone striked, uh, struck grandmas in their gardens we've you know struck weddings it's an egregious human rights violation and not only should that end but i, I think that it is incumbent on the u.s government to pay reparations to anyone haunted by these drones anyone who lost a family member should be given reparations it's such an egregious 
human rights violation. And so with Obama, he got an office and uh, once he took over, immediately he did what Trump did. He ramped up drones. And then when there were reports that they were killing a lot of innocent civilians, he scaled it back. And then right before he left office, you know, he tried to put in some uh, some uh, mechanisms that would lead to greater transparency by the U.S. government about who we are killing and not killing. Uh, but Trump undid that like that. Right, he he undid all of that easily, and he scaled up drones by four hundred percent, more than four hundred percent. So to see that Biden has brought it down to pre-Trump levels, but you know even lower than the time when Obama scaled them down, presumably excellent, excellent news. This is a victory, and I, I think that Biden deserves a lot of credit. And sure, maybe it's temporary. The partial moratorium is only a partial moratorium, and they're conducting this comprehensive review. But for them to not come in guns blazing, that is actually different in comparison with his two predecessors. And it's a really good thing that I want to applaud. Credit where it's due. I have a lot of criticisms of Joe Biden, but when it comes to drones, I think this is a phenomenal development to know that he has drastically scaled back the use of drones. These are killers. Um, they're illegal. They violate the territorial sovereignty of these countries who we are not at war with and haven't declared war with. And so not only are they illegal under U.S. law, but they're illegal under international law as well. So they have to stop. And the fact that he scaled them back dramatically, that's a really, really positive development. And I think it's important that he gets credit for this. Well, folks, that is everything that I have on my heart. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it if you've made it this far in the program. If you want to support the program, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support and patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. You can click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. Every week, you get access to our segments before they go live. And um, on top of that, every single uh, month, the last Friday of every month, I'll participate in a patron and members only Zoom chat call. So you can jump on camera and interact with me and you know the fellow supporters of the humanist support it's always a good time and they go on for like four to five hours usually uh but anyways i'm done rambling folks that's all that i have for you again i will be off next week but um when i come back of course it's going to be a celebration of our 300th episode of the humanist report podcast it's incredible to think that we've done this 300 times it's crazy but um yeah i'll see you then Take care, everyone. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Bye.